optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is the appropriate time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job each and every episode to deconstruct world-class performers, experts from various disciplines across all industries. And today we have Brandon Stanton, who is the creator of the number one New York Times bestselling books, Humans in New York, Humans of New York Stories, as well as the children's book, Little Humans of New York. In 2013, he was named one of the 30 under 30 people changing the world by Time Magazine. Brandon has told stories from around the world in collaboration with the United Nations and was invited to photograph President Obama in the Oval Office. His photography and storytelling blog, Humans of New York, is followed by more than 25 million people, plus me, on several social media platforms. He's a graduate of the University of Georgia and lives in New York City. You can find his work on Instagram at Humans of NY, as in New York, on Facebook, Humans of New York, humansofnewyork.com, and a video series based on the blog recently became one of the first pieces of original content acquired by Facebook. So you can find that as well, Humans of New York, the series. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate you making the time, and I've been following your work for quite a few years now, and uh, I'm excited to have a chance to to pick at some of the 
earlier days and explore questions that have been on my mind for a few years now. So the first question I wanted to take a stab at is actually one I'm borrowing from another Georgian, uh, and that is uh, Joe Gebbia, the co-founder of Airbnb, who likes to ask this question. Do you remember the first time you got in trouble or one of the first times you got in trouble? Oh, God. Um, (laughs) The first time I got in trouble. Or a notable time that you got in trouble when you were younger. A a notable time, I remember, um, I was sitting in – my mom used to take us to the grocery store a lot of times after school. And and, you know she was just going to run in for a few minutes and grab something. And so we were just supposed to sit in the car, um, and I think I was like you know nine or ten. Um, and I wasn't supposed to touch anything, but there were all these like buttons on the dashboard and things like that. And, (laughs) um, I remember she came back out and I think, you know, the alarms going off and then the the keys, the steering wheels locked and then you can't move (laughs) the car. And I remember that one very vaguely because I wasn't allowed to go to the fall festival at the school that year, um, which was a, um, my favorite thing to do because they had like carnival, you know, games and things like that. Um, so going back in my mind about the, you know, a painful early time of getting in trouble, you know, that comes into mind. As I was doing homework for this conversation, I was reading up on some of the, I suppose, earlier days. And the particular sentence that I wanted to explore uh, was in a previous interview of yours. And it covers quite a bit, but it said, after having flunked out of college and later going back and graduating as a history major with straight A's, and then it goes on to say a number of other things. Right. But did you get into a lot of trouble as a kid or what what led to the flunking out of college? Right. Well, I mean, I always say that, you know, a lot of my early trouble uh, was coming from this thought that I had to do something really big in the world. And, you know, I'm sitting in class all day and I'm learning these kind of, you know, very minute details about things like the Magna Carta and, you know, the compromise of 18, whatever. Uh, And none of this really seemed important at all because, you know, I felt that I felt that I was, you know, my purpose had to be much greater than this. And then how am I going to use any of this in life? Um, and so like, you know, I spent all of my time, you know, back then I was smoking a lot of weed, um, and just like trying to think about what my big idea and what my contribution to the world was going to be. And instead of going to class, I was doing that, you know, instead of really kind of working to improve myself, you know, I was doing that just, you know, pontificating and then just like thinking all the time about, you know, what my contribution to the world is going to be. Uh, and that was the time that I flunked out and, you know, things really started moving forward for me was when I threw in the towel, you know, I waved the white flag. I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop trying to figure out, 
you know, what the big thing I'm supposed to accomplish is. And I'm just going to start doing what I was supposed to do. And, you know, I started riding the bus and, and started going to community college, Georgia Perimeter College. I got my grades back up. I went back to the University of Georgia where I flunked out of. And, you know, I focused on becoming a disciplined person and, you know, having a routine in my life of working out every day playing piano every single day, doing my homework. And, you know, it's funny because when I stopped trying to think about this big thing that I was going to accomplish in life and started just focusing on putting one foot in front of the other every single day, it began to propel me on the journey that ultimately led to Humans of New York, which was something bigger than I could have ever imagined when I was hitting the bong in the Creswell dorm at the <laughs> University of Georgia. <laughs> now, this preoccupation that you had with your big contribution to the world, I don't know how common that is. I didn't have that preoccupation. Well, did, you, did that come from well, parents? Did that come from a book you read? Where did that come from? Uh, uh, psychedelic mushrooms might have had a little something to do with it. I can um, see that. I can see you that. You know, I just like... <laughs> I, it's just like I spent so much time, you know, I had a very intelligent group of friends and, you know, so much of, you know, my 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 um, was just, uh, I guess, partaking in these recreational activities, trying to figure out what is truth, you know, like what is what is the meaning of all of this and like all of these kind of big questions uh compared to which uh you know these intricacies of things like calculus and algebra and you know verb conjugations and french and you know all these subjects i was being forced to do in school seemed so minor and not useful to what i really wanted to understand and, you know, alongside these kind of like big questions about, you know, why are we here and and what is this all about came this kind of feeling. And, you know, I think some sort of kind of vague like spirituality was wrapped up in it as well that, you know, this is a, this this world is, is so amazing. And the fact that we're here is so amazing and doing anything less than something amazing is kind of squandering you know, this, this whole reason that you're here. Um, and I, I think that's, that was the kind of thinking, you know, that brought me down this path that I was, you know, my time was too good. And, and, and my thoughts, like, you know, the, the, the space in my brain was too precious to, you know, fill it up with all these, you know, little, this homework and this, and this stuff that seems so unimportant. Uh, and so instead I just, you know, spent all my time just kind of grappling with these, with these bigger things. What was it like growing up in Marietta, Georgia? Am I right? Yeah. And were you, Um, and were you born in Georgia also? Yeah, I was born in Georgia. I mean, I am somebody who has 
liked everywhere I've ever been. I liked my school. I liked my college. I liked the community college I went to after I flunked out of my college. Uh, I liked Atlanta. Uh, I liked Chicago. I love New York. You know, I'm, I'm generally somebody who appreciates the, the place that I'm in. Uh, I tend to find that people complaining about where they live, not always. I mean, it's, it's not – you can there's always some place that you can be that might be better for you but if you hate the place that you live if you if you kind of just despise it um i find that a lot of times a new environment is not the key to your happiness uh cuz i find that a lot of times the people that are complaining about one place when they move to another place then you know if it's if they live in atlanta and the answer is new york then when they get to New York, you know what? New York's dead. The answer is L.A. When they get to L.A., oh, the American values suck. Need to get to Paris. You know, when they get <laughs> when they get to Paris, oh, you know, the West is is so, you know, it's so materialistic. I need to go to India. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and so I find a lot of times the place that kind of the people who kind of externalize their environment as being the reason for their dissatisfaction tend to be unsatisfied everywhere. Uh, I'm kind of the opposite. You know, I've loved the, every place that I've lived. I, I've loved the people, um, you know, that I've met in every place I lived. Marietta was Starbucks and Barnes and Noble, but I had a great, great group of friends and, you know, I, I enjoyed growing up there. I'm just, I'm just piecing the connective tissue together as I go because I'm really interested. I don't know why this is the case, but it, particularly in the last six months, I've been more and more fascinated by the earlier stages with almost everyone I've been chatting with. The history major, you graduate with straight A's and then you end up, and I know you've, you've, you've spoken quite a bit about this, so we won't belabor the point, but you get a job as a bond trader. In, in Chicago is my understanding. And it was sort of right. The, the, right the first time that you weren't embarrassed in front of family and friends about where your life was going. You get this, this prestigious job. How did, how did you go about choosing that job or finding that job or how did it find you <laughs> from, from, from history? Right. Right. So, I mean, the whole reason I became, I mean, to give you, to catch you up a little bit, um, you know, when I first went to the university of Georgia, I was majoring in business. That's when I wasn't going to class. Uh, I flunked out. Uh, and then when I decided to go back to college, you know, I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to study something that I enjoy anyway. So it's not this kind of, you know, major force of effort to go to class and to do my work. Um, at that time, I had developed a reading habit. That was really when my life kind of turned around. Because remember, you know, I, I – I stopped thinking about these kind of big problems I wanted to solve and, you know, I started focusing on, you know, establishing a routine and some discipline in my life. And one of the first big ones and still probably the most monumental routine that I ever established and decision I ever made was that I was going to read 100 pages a day, um, mostly nonfiction. And whether the book was The Little Prince or it was something like The Wealth of Nations, you know, whether it took me an hour or whether it took me eight hours, every single day I was going to read 100 pages. And I did that for years. Uh, even when I went back to school, in addition to my schoolwork, I would read 100 pages. What catalyzed – sorry to interrupt, but what catalyzed that decision? I mean was this there a – feeling – it's like this – it was this feeling – I mean psychologically, you know, it was like this feeling of being, you know, maybe behind – 
you know, I, I, I remembered, I remembered, um, you know, the, one of the very first books that I read was, uh, this autobiography of, you know, Ben Franklin. And, you know, he has all these kind of, you know, he did the poor Richard's almanac and he has all these kind of sayings. And I remember, you know, first of all, Ben Franklin himself was kind of the pioneer in, in getting self-improvement down to a science, you know what I mean? And, um, so, you know, his example, first of all, of how much he, you know, how much effort he put into improving himself and moving himself forward. And then I remember he had this one quote, you know, that um, uneducated genius is like finding silver in the mine, you know, and it kind of it, it you know, made me think that, you know, I had spent all this time kind of, you know, thinking and kind of pondering uh and I thought that I was, you know, that school was beneath me and school was boring. And, you know, because of that, I really hadn't been imbibing much information. And, you know, at that time, it's something kind of flipped. And I felt like, you know, I've missed out on, you know, probably the last four or six years of education because I was just doing the minimum. You know, I was I was just getting by and you know, writing my papers before class. You know, I was probably looking at the person's next to me's paper, you know, a few times. And so it's like even though I was making okay grades, I really wasn't, you know, taking in a lot of information and educating myself. And so, you know, I think that at that time I decided I was going to become extremely educated. And, you know, I did. I did become an extremely educated person. But, you know, 95% of that education was outside of school. You know, 95% of that education was over the course of seven or eight years uh, saying I'm going to read 100 pages of nonfiction a day every single day. And I did it for seven or eight years. I'd say 60% of that was biography. Uh, I would say another 20% of it was history. Uh, and then, you know, I, and it wasn't, I would read fiction too, you know, when I was absolutely tired of eating my vegetables and (laughs) I, um, that's what I, that's what I would call, you know, the most boring books, you know, the really kind of conceptual one I just viewed as vegetables, you know, I was just like, it was some, sometimes, sometimes hard to get through, but, the the uh, fiber of knowledge. Yeah. You know, but you, you, it, it grows and it kind it kind of develops you, um, but yeah, you know, so biographies were the ones that I was really, really drawn to. Um, and so, you know, at the time, you know, I started like kind of reading all these biographies and I was loving it. And biography is just history. You know, biography is the best form of history, if you ask me, because it, it cuts through the theory. It cuts through, you know, all the speculation of the author. And we get down to the nuts and the bolts of the decisions that – people made in their lives. And I think that is the purest form of education that you can get. And it is the advice that I give people who don't know what they want to do with their lives. Pick somebody that you admire and read their biography. Read their biography. If you really want some sort of guidance in your life, pick somebody who's done things that you want to do and that you really admire and read a nice, fat, 800-page biography of their lives. Find out the struggles they went through. Find out the you know the twists and turns of their lives and the decisions they made, and I mean I don't think there's any better 
actionable roadmap, actionable education than getting down the granular level of somebody's life and finding out how they navigated it. If, uh, if someone wanted to, let's just say that they are having a lapse of concentration and can't think of people they admire who have biographies, if you were to recommend any, let's just say one to three biographies as gateway drugs into I that mean, world? Are there any it, that come it, to mind? It depends upon what you want to accomplish in life. Like if you're just flagging and you don't know what you want to do, uh, start with Ben Franklin. Start with somebody who is, who is, you know, very disciplined and, you know, programmatic in, in figuring out how to develop themselves. Again, my advice always to people who are stuck is quit looking at the big pictures. People get stuck because they want to accomplish too big of things and they don't know the right step to take. So, you know, I always say just kind of instead of focusing on the year, instead of focusing on the arc of your life, focus on the 24-hour period. And nobody mastered the 24-hour period more than Benjamin Franklin. So it's like if you have no idea what you want to do, start there, I would say. If you know what you want to do, you've got to pick the person that you admire the most. You know, do you want to participate in social movements? You know, pick Martin Luther King. Uh, do you want to be president of the United States? If you want to pick, be president of the United States, I would recommend Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, because he was probably the president that was given the least in his life, except for maybe Abraham Lincoln. You know, he was the he didn't go to Ivy League. You know, he didn't. Um, he wasn't necessarily a a great looking guy. You know, he went to San Marcos Teacher College. He. You know, basically, and again, this is if if you want to be president, I don't want to be president. Uh, He, you know, worked his way up through understanding how the levers of democracy work, the levers of power in our government work. Uh, And so he is a fascinating character sketch on how to be president. Uh, If you want to read uh, a Lyndon Johnson biography, you should read the four-volume biography by Robert Caro, uh, which is the best of those. Um, But, you know, other than that, it just like it all depends upon – what it is that you want to do in life. You know, there's there's just no biography that every person should read. They should pick the person they admire the most and read the biography of their life. With Ben Franklin, it, would it be the uh, a biography like Walter Isaacson or would you the, rec- Isaac, the, the Isaac the Isaacson one was the one I read and that stands out the most because it was the first. The p- person that I've read the most biographies on uh, probably Theodore Roosevelt, um, just because his life is so fascinating. Um, probably Adolf Hitler, probably Stalin. And it's not because it, in any way these people are admirable, but like as a history major, to me it wasn't the individual themselves that was fascinating. To me, it was how does a group of people, you know, Germany was a smart, industrialized country. To me, the big philosophical question that fascinated me and the, and the reason that I, I've delved so much into the lives and, and the practices of, of dictators is, you know, how is it that a group of such educated, smart, well-meaning people uh, – we're, we're able to be, you know, um, ever to be able to be organized under the, you know, the premise of committing such evil. 
And that to me has has always fascinated me because I believe that people are inherently good. And, you know, I've traveled to 30 or 40 different countries. And, you know, it's funny. Every place has a reputation. Oh, don't go to this city. People won't talk to you. You know, so many times when I land in a place, they say, you know, oh, this isn't going to work here. You know, people people aren't open here. People aren't friendly here. And, you know, I find one on one People all over the world, you know, are very they 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 kind of share, you know, a, a a similar soul, I guess. And you know, if people are generally the same everywhere, you know, then then that means anywhere something like this could happen. Right. Any anywhere, you know, people can can get pulled into this crowd psychology, and you know, direct their anger and their hatred and violence towards people in a way that would contradict their morals if you met them one on one. And, you know, because of that, the 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 lives and the periods of history that have always been most intellectually interesting to me. Again, it's not something I admire. It's not something I I'm looking to duplicate, of course, uh, have, have been these periods where a very driven ideological individual has managed to to mobilize a group of people towards ends that looking back from a historical perspective were brutal and violent and absolutely unexplainable and you know i think it's important to understand these things to keep it from happening again do you remember you asked about bond trading like oh <laughs> i do no, no. Two, two questions ago i we, never we, even we, talked about it and no, i mean, but we the can... whole thing. <laughs> Well, the whole reason I, – well, I, I think you know I started talking about histories because bond trading was really an anomaly in my life. Um, I was really kind of wrapped up in all these things that we're talking about now. You know, I was really kind of wrapped up in, in history and, and biography mainly um, when Obama uh, – it was – god, what was it? 2008, 2007? I think it was 2007. He was in the primary um and i was i really became fixated on this campaign uh and you know i was not i was going to knock on doors uh and this was during the primary when he's going up against hillary and i was knocking on doors i was going to different states and knocking on doors and and um i was reading every article about the, the delegate system and super delegates and you know there was this point where i was just absolutely positive he was going to win i was this is the primary i was just absolutely positive he was going to win um and i was broke at the time uh, this is not something i would ever do today um but i took out $5000 in student loans and i actually bet on barack obama to win the presidency <laughs> where does um, where does one bet on something like back, that back then it was an irish exchange it has since gone under it was called intrade um, and I think they had him at like 40% chance to win at that time. Um, and he had like a 70% chance to win or something. And so, you know, I, I didn't make a ton of money off of it because it took me like a week to wire my money to um, Ireland. And in the time that I was wiring my money, he had won a couple more times. Uh, the odds changed. Yeah. Exactly. And so, um, you know, I ended up only making, I mean, I made like, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred dollars, which for me as a college student was all the money in the world. Uh, but more fatefully, uh, I was telling that story just like I'm telling it to you. 
uh, to a friend of mine who worked in Chicago, uh, and he was a trader. He was a bond trader, and I was telling I was telling him that story, and he told me, you know, the the one differentiator uh, between successful traders and unsuccessful traders in our office is their um, their comfort with risk taking. Uh, and based on that story, um, you know, I would like you to talk to my boss. Um, and <laughs> so based on I, the extreme prudence you've demonstrated yeah. with that story. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's the, you know, I think, I think it was kind of the, the comfort with risk taking. And so, right, you know, right. at that time I was, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do again. I just studied history because I was, I enjoyed it and I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, and so he got me in an in interview with his boss and it was scheduled. And I mean, this is somebody who went to an Ivy league school and, you know, he had studied finance his entire life and he had gotten this job. So I thought this was an opportunity I would not have any other way. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at the time. I was a history major. Um, and so I had like a month to prepare. So I read about 20 books on the market. Uh, and then I went into the interview and, uh, at that time I was very well, um, versed on how markets worked and, uh, that's how I got that job. Good thing you had all that reading practice. Go. <laughs> what was your first week as a bond trader like? Um, well, I mean, and see, this is the, and I always try to say, you know, when I, uh, <laughs> I mean, if somebody has just listened to this interview up until this point, you know, I think it's we, we talk about you know bond trading and dictators, you know, which, <laughs> which which really has nothing to do with my life now. Um, but you know, I and and I think the narrative that people in interviews always try to put on me is that because I mean it's a fun narrative. Oh, chasing the money, you know, doing this soul sucking finance job, and then you know, cut the rope behind him to pursue his true passion, which was taking photographs and art. And I mean, there's a, there's a kernel of truth there. Um, you know, but the, the real story is that markets were fascinating to me. I, you know, I, I, I'm still fascinated by markets. You know, they seem so tangible when you're watching CNBC and you're seeing these numbers and it seems all so mathematical, but in reality, markets are, are nothing but a bunch of people arguing over what something's worth. You know, (laughs) it's just like, it's a, a market. If you, if you remove the computer and, you know, go back, you know, 50 years, a market is a crowd of people haggling over what something that is impossible to value is worth, and the 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 number that comes out of it is is really based on psychology, and it's based on this this back and forth over over you know what these numbers mean, and you know that was always so interesting to me, um, and, and it remains you know very interesting to me. So I was philosophically very interested in markets, and uh, I was I. I was fascinated by bond trading and, you know, I, I was obsessed with it, to be honest, for two years. Um, and it was a type of bond trading. We were very highly leveraged. And so, you know, it was a type where there was just huge gains or huge losses like every single night. Uh, you know, I compare it to like playing a very high stakes game of poker every single night. And so it was, 
it was extremely, uh, you know, I, I don't think I could do it today. I was in my early 20s at the time. It was just there was just adrenaline pumping through my body at all times. And, you know, I was in, in that when you when you take something that is you're you're naturally kind of philosophically interested in and, and you pair it with, um, you know, a large amount of money. Uh, and a large amount of excitement, it, it creates this this fixation. It's almost like crack, you know, where it's just all you can think about at any given time. And you know, when I go to colleges and I give speeches on you know the, the path of humans of New York, and you know what led me to kind of pursue this life that was you know outside of books and outside of computer screens, was that you know I. After the end of two years when I lost my job, I kind of looked back at, you know, the time that I had spent that two years. And it it wasn't the physical time that was lost that was most concerning to me. It was that I had spent two years using all of my intellect and all of my creative energy trying to figure out how to be the most effective relative value trader in fixed income securities in the Asian markets. It was something – it was just something that was so narrow and so myopic, and I couldn't even talk with my friends about it. And at the end of two years, you know, that was – we had gone through the financial crisis. I'd lost everything I'd ever made. You know, when I, when I lost that job, it was a very lucrative job potentially. But when I lost that job, I was broke because I'd lost everything. Why did you lose the job? What happened? Uh, well, I mean, the it, it depends upon how much personal responsibility I want to take. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think yeah. the, the 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 narrative that's most protective of the ego is that we had a type of trading that was calibrated to work during periods of low volatility. Um, the years from, I'd guess, 1995 or whatever, or after the, whenever, you know, I don't, I don't know when my math is right, but you know, like late nineties to, you know, 2008 were periods of historically low volatility where the type of trading that we were doing worked. And during when the financial crisis hit in 2008, volatility went through the roof. Uh, long story short, the type of trading that we were doing um, stopped working, and uh, the company when that had been around for over a decade was out of business uh, about a year after I left. Um, so that's the that is the the part of the that, that's the way of explaining that that avoids the most personal responsibility. Um, if I was to explain it in the way that you know makes myself the most personally responsible, uh, markets changed and I wasn't uh, adaptive enough to figure it out. Uh, I kept banging my head against the same things that used to be working. Uh, I refused to I refused to fully embrace the fact that what worked for me extremely well for a year had stopped working. Uh, and because of that, the, the, the risk calculations had changed. And instead of making a lot of money every night, I was losing a lot of money every night. Um, and I eventually got to the point where, you know, I I was no longer a productive member of the firm. Uh and so, yeah, it depends upon which story you want to tell. I think the truth is probably somewhere in between the two. Uh, but regardless, I ended up without a job. 
Well, thank you for telling or sharing both versions of that. And <laughs> no, it's, 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 I think that that also reflects a level of, this may not be the right word, but sort of objectivity or an ability to detach and observe that has always fascinated me uh, about you, quite frankly, um, which certainly translates, I think, in a very empathic way later, and we'll, we'll get to that. But I want to talk about the finance world and markets for just a second, because as you noted, it's, it's very tempting for someone who's trying to weave a narrative of your life into this soul-sucking period, sees the light, cuts the tether, burns the ships off into the arts and true passion. But the, the markets, as you noted, are really fascinating. And I was chatting with uh, someone I've just gotten to know, actually, in the last few weeks, a, let's call, I suppose you could call him a wealth manager, but 75% of what he does is invest in, in bonds. He probably wouldn't call it trading, but in effect, I mean, that's, that's what he's doing. And he said something to me that, that has stuck in my mind for uh, a while now, which is, you know, I learn more in the first two to four hours of sitting down and talking to someone about money than their therapists have probably learned over the last two to four years and getting to see how people respond to money and loss aversion and the possibility of making money is in and of itself fascinating. Then you add in thousands and millions of market participants, it gets even more interesting. And then when at least in, in my limited experience, when I read something, my exposure to bonds is very limited, but when you read something like Liar's Poker uh, by Michael Lewis, which I think is a fantastic book, and the, the part that stuck out to me where I was like, okay, I need to be very careful about playing this game because I'll get my face ripped off, is there's some part, and I'm going to get all the details wrong, but there's some guy who's nicknamed like Fat Tony, and he's a big wig at Solomon Brothers, and he bets his buddies that the market's for whatever, double A bonds and X, Y, and Z are going up. And he's, he bets them and it's this dick measuring contest. And it, he puts 50 million into the market and it, and it goes down. <laughs> and, uh, and so his, his friends are busting his balls and he's, then they're like, ah, oh, market's going up, huh? And so he, instead of putting 50 million in, he's like, fuck it. And he puts 500 million in and like all the other market participants panic thinking that he has information they don't. And so the market goes right. up and he says, see, I told you the market was going up. Right, <laughs> and, I, right. and I was like, oh my God, this is yeah. not nearly as clean as the textbooks would want you to believe. Well, I would, I would, um, you know, I, as somebody who's interviewed 10,000 people, I, I would say that, you know, talking with somebody about their money and how they choose to use their money will give you a insight into a very limited, uh, a, and I, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but like a, a very limited aspect of their personality, which is their comfort with risk. And, uh, you know, I think there's, I think our, our approach to money and our approach to trading and our approach to, to markets are, are very much kind of driven by like our, our animal spirits, uh, you know, greed and fear and things like that. Um, but, you know, I, I feel that the, you know, kind of the, the, there's a, a huge, a huge portion of people's lives and kind of thought lives that are, um, you know, kind of separate and, you know, isolated from, from that, those drives, you know what I mean? Those, those very kind of primal drives of, of wanting, wanting more and being afraid to lose. I mean, that's, that's really what, what drives the markets is, is the, is the greed and the fear, uh, is, and I, you know, I think, 
I think talking, you know, with somebody about their, you know, their, those, those two drives and where their greed comes from or where their fear comes from, you know, it'll, it'll give you, you know, it'll give you, it'll give you some insight, but, you know, I, you know, to me, the, the markets, you know, they, there's, they they can only tell you so much um and they can only you know it's such a it's such a it's it's a part of human existence the 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 drives that that control a market um but you know there's so much that people care about outside of that and i think that was what was so dangerous about just being a trader is that you know you're 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 burying so much of your thought energy into just the desire for more and the fear of losing. You know what I mean? That kind of the kind of narrow animalistic drives that that you know that that push a market up up and down, and you're kind of tethering yourself to that, uh, and you just kind of miss out on so much of the life that's going on around you. And this is me. You know, this is me. I think it's part of my personality that once I dive into something, it's I do it to the exclusion of almost everything else. Uh, one of the reasons Humans of New York uh, ended up becoming so successful, uh, I did know, you know, some of, uh, you know, this more the exception than the rule. There are people who are so in control of their emotions or maybe they don't have the same emotional range as other people um, that are able to turn off their computer every single day, go home and not think about the markets and com- kind of completely leave them there. Um, but, you know, for me, it was something that, you know, was kind of all consuming for me. And, you know, when I made the the decision to pursue something more artistic, um, was when you know I had kind of I had kind of lost my job, and I was looking back at the two years of my life, and I was thinking, God, you know, and and after I lost my job, you know, I I was so scared of that day, you know, during the two years when I was obsessing over markets, and then when things started going bad, you know, there was nothing I was more afraid of than losing that job, and then on the day that it happened, it was surprisingly a good day. Because I remember taking a walk that day and I started asking myself things like, what do I want to do? You know, like, what what do I want to do? Things, something like if I could do anything with my time, what would I do? And I had I had been for two years like so focused on keeping that job, you know, that I had didn't I I had never I didn't have room in my brain to kind of ask myself any other questions. And so, you know, at that moment, I decided, you know, I've lost these two years of not only my time, but more importantly, I've lost two years of my thoughts focusing on this, this, this game, this game for making money, which was fascinating and philosophically interesting. But, you know, when you, when you boil it down, it's a game. And I said, you know, I'm going to spend the next foreseeable future Instead of my spending my time, you know, trying to to make money, you know, I'm going to try to make just enough money to where I can control my time and just do something that I enjoy doing for no other reason than it is nourishing in the moment. Not that at the end of the day, I'm going to have a profit, but because it's nourishing in the moment. And at that time, it was photography. And the whole reason, I think, you know, one of the the best, 
you know, the kind of neatest things about Humans of New York is that over the past eight years, you know, Humans of New York has become largely, you know, the most, you know, followed photography project in the world with, you know, I think 25 million on social media now. And it's eight years old. And I think one of the coolest things is I just started photographing about eight years ago. You know, I started taking photos during this time that I'm talking with you about. And the whole reason I started taking photos was because I was trying to create some space in my mind away from work. I was desperate for something to do on the weekends that, you know, did, that would would give me this this foothold in my brain where I had a sense of purpose and a sense of identity outside how the markets were doing every single day. And so I bought this camera. I started going to downtown Chicago and photographing, you know, just everything. Uh, and I loved it. And not long after, I lost my job. And I made the decision that I was going to be a photographer, not because I was very skilled at it at the time, you know, not because I thought it was an angle towards success and not because I thought it was an angle towards an audience. Is that I just loved doing it in the moment. It was nourishing in the moment. And so I found this thing that was nourishing in the moment that I enjoyed doing. And I said, you know, I'm going to try to structure my life around creating as much time for this as possible. I want to make the minimum amount of I just I want to make just enough money to where I can pay my rent, eat, and photograph all day long. And the journey that ended up creating Humans of New York was my attempt to create that space in my life and that space in my head to focus on something that was very nourishing in the moment. How did you cover your expenses in the very early days of that experience? This was 2008. Um, we had a, I believe, a record amount of time that you could get unemployment and I had just lost my job. And so I got $620, I think, every two weeks uh, from the government because I was unemployed and I had worked for two years. Um, so that was enough to basically just pay my rent in a sublease that I found on Craigslist uh, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. Uh, that was enough to pay that and maybe have peanut butter jelly sandwiches and eggs, um, assuming that you needed no other expenses, that you wore the same clothes and the same shoes. Uh, that was enough for me to just eat, sleep, and photograph all day long. Um, and once I got to have a, you know, a decent level of skill, uh, and I mean just a passable level of skill, uh, if anybody would pay me to take portraits for them, I would do that. I Somebody hired me to do their wedding. Um, and uh, I basically, I just, I, I didn't spend money on anything. All I did was photograph all day long. Because I knew that I was like I was making this pivot in my life to where I was going after kind of a lucrative career towards I was going towards just wanting to spend my time doing something all day long. Uh, and so, you know, and I became obsessed with photography in the same way that I was obsessed with markets. I mean, I just 
I, I loved it. I just loved it. It was like a treasure hunt. I mean, just going out and it was so different than trading too. I mean, it was, I'm outside, I'm interacting with the world. I'm having conversations, you know, I'm, I'm having these I'm little adventures and, and discovering these new things. And I was just hooked on it and I was just obsessed with it. And, you know, I knew I was making a lot of sacrifices to be doing this in my life. Uh, so I didn't do anything else. You know, I didn't go to concerts. I didn't go out to restaurants. I, I really, I didn't spend much time with friends because I didn't really know anybody in New York. Uh, I mean, that's another crazy detail about Humans of New York is that Humans of New York is an eight-year-old photography project, uh, you know, based on people in New York City. Uh, you know, I took my first photograph eight years ago, and I went to New York for the very first time in my life eight years ago. Uh, so it was, you know, all it was all just uh, very new and all very driven by the desire to photograph all day long. Was the move to New York related to the desire to take photographs, or was yeah. it uh, something so, else? So, I mean, what I did is, so I got fired, uh, and I started. My goal was like I got I want to find out how to be a photographer. You know I love photography. How am I going to create a life where I can support myself and photograph all day long? And so I was just out doing it every single day. And then I started kind of along with the graffiti and along with the you know architectural shots and along with the nature shots. I started photographing people, and I noticed that these. Out of everything I was photographing, the photographs of people were the most unique. They're the ones that, that least resembled everything else I was seeing being put on Facebook and stuff like that. Um, and so I decided to kind of focus on that. And then while focusing on that, I started stopping people on the street and asking for their photo and kind of taking a portrait of them. And because of that extra layer of difficulty of having to approach a stranger, the portraits that I was taking of people were more different than the the candid photos I was taking of people. And so I started focusing solely on that, you know, and that's when I kind of started having an idea that even though I hadn't been photographing so long, I was heading in a direction that was pretty unique because I was stopping random people on the streets um, in a very, you know, I know some people will do series, but I was doing this every single day and I was getting quite a collection. And this seemed like kind of a new, a kind of fresh type of photography. So it's all I did. And then I started traveling to different cities. I went to Philadelphia, just stopping people. Then I went to New Orleans. Um, I went back to Atlanta and did this. And then I traveled to New York. And when I got to New York and I was stopping people and asking for their photographs, um, I realized that New York, if you were going to try to do this type of photography, was the best place to be. I mean – mainly just just practical reasons uh that you you don't need a car in new york i didn't have a car um and i couldn't afford a car you, uh you can just ride the subway everywhere you can walk everywhere and there's so many people i mean there's so many people i remember coming out of the lincoln tunnel the very first time and looking down, and I couldn't even see the sidewalk because it, <laughs> it was rush hour, and the, it was just – there were so many people. And I thought, 
you know, if I'm going to do this type of photography, uh, this is the place to do it. And I wasn't doing any interviews at this time. And I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like the humans of New York that I moved to New York to do looks nothing like the, the humans of New York that later became successful. I mean, it was really just the impetus to get me on the ground working every day to kind of figure it out along the way. Uh, you know, my very first idea for humans of New York was I was going to photograph 10,000 people in New York city across all five boroughs. And I was going to plot their photo on a map. That was my idea of how I was going to make a life out of being a photographer is I was going to be the guy who did that. <laughs> and, uh, it was, that was kind of what got me on the ground got me out on the streets every single day, approaching hundreds and thousands of people uh, and put me in the situation where I could kind of innovate and I could start having conversations with these people, which turned into questions I was asking them, which turned into eventually seven years later, the kind of 90 minute to an hour and a half long very kind of probing and, and, and therapeutic and, and psychological interviews that I have with random strangers every single day, the result of which and the output of which uh, became the stories that I think people are so connected with and, and, and the stories that really make humans of New York humans of New York. How are you getting better at photography uh, during this, say, first, let's just call it six-month period, since you certainly seem, from all indications, to be someone who goes for total immersion, and whether it's reading yeah. 10 to 20 books on the markets before an interview, uh, you go 100% into whatever subject matter you choose. How are you getting better? What books were you reading? Who are you studying? What were you mm. trying? I mean... I was too addicted to taking photos to ever stop for a second and learn about photography. <laughs> I have I have one memory. I have one memory of going to Barnes & Noble because I can't afford to buy any books. Uh, I have a one memory of going to Barnes & Noble one night and flipping through some photography books and, and enjoying the photos. But – uh, I just, I, I just wanted to be out taking pictures. You know, I, I, I didn't really want to be studying how to take a correct photo. You know, I just wanted to be out photographing. It was the, the act of it, the act of discovery, you know, and I had a very amateur view of photography at the time, where is if you, if you get something or somebody interesting in the frame, it's a great photo. I don't care how many points perspective it has. I don't care about the rules of thirds. I honestly don't really even care about white balance or focus or any of these things. I was just looking for for wonderful people and, and wonderful moments that were happening. I was still doing a lot of candid photography of people. Uh, and if, if I captured that, that was a good photo. And that's that's all I cared about. And that was what was driving me for these, you know, these first several months and, and this first year, year and a half when I took thousands and thousands of pictures and I was getting better slowly. I mean, I'm 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 not necessarily bragging about that kind of aversion to formal training as if it was some sort of badge of honor. It was just the way my psychology was hardwired. And because of that, I might have improved more slowly than somebody else. 
And in fact, I might have improved so slowly that I'm sure a lot of professional photographers look down on my photography still. But by being that engaged and emerged in the process, as opposed to any sort of a, a formal structure of what makes a photograph, I innovated my own style. I innovated my own type of work that later on, you know, people have, have introduced me to Studs Terkel and people introduced me to, you know, to these, these, these wonderful photographers of the past who took these, you know, you know, Jacob Reese and who took these wonderful photos of regular people, uh, that my work, you know, kind of grew to resemble, but I mean, any resemblance just came out of being on the street and doing it all day long and just, and, and figuring out, you know, what it was that I liked the most and without any education of what a correct photograph was. And, you know, I think if Humans of New York has original elements, if, if Humans of New York is original in any way, it was because I was just so addicted to taking photos that I never stopped to learn about photography. And because of that, you know, I, I just, I was figuring it out as I went along. Well, it seems to me also that there are many different facets of photography, one component of which is the technical knowledge, but certainly another component of which is choosing the subject matter, right? And thinking about the story that an image tells. So you were learning about photography, but you were doing it vis-a-vis -vis the sheer volume of experience that you were gathering behind the camera and walking right. through New York City. Right. Well, I was just, you know, I was looking for anyone who, anything that captured my attention or curiosity at all got photographed. I mean, and that's one of the beautiful things about digital cameras is, I mean, you can just take a thousand photos every single day. Um, and so you don't have to worry about conserving film. Like you can just photograph everything. And so anything that caught my eye got photographed. And then when you go home and you load your thousand pictures on the computer and you start going through and because you don't know how to photograph, you photograph that person 50 different times and you're looking at your 50 photos of each person and you're finding the one that you think looks the best. And then you're going and you're doing it again and you're doing it again and suddenly you're not taking 50 photos of each person. You're taking 40, then 30, then 20, and then 10 as you start to get an idea of what it is that you think is a great photo and what it is that you like. Uh, and that was kind of really how I was honing in on my style again, which might still be considered primitive. It still might be considered unschooled by a lot of people, but I was just honing in on what I liked about a photo. Um, and that's, that was the process. What were you, what were you doing with these photos in the, in the beginning? Or maybe a better question is, when you first started putting photos online, what did that look like? Um, at first, I was putting – I had – one of my main kind of weaknesses and blind spots in the beginning was not understanding the importance of daily content because, you know, I had never had a blog before. 
Um, and so I kind of had this great, and I, I mean, it kind of mirrors my, my journey as a college student where I was like trying to do something huge instead of focusing on doing something every single day. Um, and so I was, I had this huge kind of sweeping project of, I was going to photograph 10,000 people and plot their photos on a map. I was dumping about 30 or 40 of these portraits every single day onto this website that I had that nobody was going to. And the numbers, I, I even had a counter on the top of the website counting, <laughs> counting up to 10,000 because that's all I cared about was the end. I was going to get 10,000. I was going to create this sweeping photography project. Um, was it called Humans of New York at the time or what was it the was name? Called, it was called Humans of New York from the very beginning, yes. Um, and it, things really, and, and nobody was really paying attention. And I was taking hundreds and thousands of portraits and things really started to get traction when I started posting the photos as I got them onto social media, mainly Facebook. That is when things really started to grow and the focus of humans of New York moved away from this giant sweeping project of that was going to cover the entire city of New York and be some sort of representation of New York City. And it switched much more to about the individual. Who is this person that I'm meeting each day? And it became something more personal and immediate. Uh, and that's when things uh, really started growing. Brendan, I'd love to ask you about the green lady if that rings a bell. Could you right. please describe for folks the experience of the green lady? So, I mean, I'm in New York and I've been trying to make this work uh, for about six months now. And six months in you know that time of my life was probably the equivalent of about two years of work uh, because I worked every single day. I worked on Christmas. I worked on Thanksgiving. Um, I didn't go home. All I did was photograph all day long. You know, I would go out. I would I would just photograph people. I'd come home. I would take a nap, and then I would go out at night uh, and and try to get some more photos. And so I, I had gotten thousands of these portraits, and not many people were paying attention. I think I had just kind of started posting my photos on Facebook. And um, I photographed this woman, and she was dressed all in green. And she had green hair and green makeup. And I remember it was a, it was a photo that I, I didn't like. I thought it was a very bad photo. And I wasn't even going to really post it on the blog. Uh, but then I remembered that she had said something to me. She had said, I used to be a different color every single day. But then one day I was green, and that was a great day. And so I've been green for 15 years. <laughs> and I, I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't really like the photograph, uh, but I'm going to try putting this quote above it that she said. And I posted it onto Facebook and suddenly it was the most engaged with photo that I'd ever posted. Uh, I think we're talking like 67 likes at this time. There was <laughs> not a lot of people following my page. Um, and it really, it was kind of a, a eureka moment because it really made sense that, you know, in this 
during these months and almost a year of, of doing nothing but approaching random people on the street and asking for their photograph, uh, the thing that strangely I had gotten to be an expert at wasn't the photography, but it was the approaching strangers and the the walking up to random people, uh, getting rejected a lot of times and not letting that affect my my mood. Uh, and then once meeting somebody, you know, in a very short amount of time, making that person comfortable and kind of the eureka moment was if that is what I've become good at, if that is what I have to offer the world, shouldn't I, now that I've gotten over this fear of approaching a stranger, use that opportunity to learn a little bit about this person so that I can share a little bit about this person with other people who might be curious of the people around them, but haven't been able to overcome that fear of talking to strangers. And, you know, it turned out that the audience for that, the the amount of people who were curious of the lives of the people around them but were too afraid to ask, uh, you know, ended up being hundreds, then thousands, and then tens of thousands, and millions, and then now tens of millions. And, you know, from that moment on, Humans of New York stopped being a photography project. Uh, I don't even view myself as a photographer. You know, you can you can write a a three page essay about why I'm a horrible photographer, and it's been done many times. <laughs> uh, and it it doesn't really bother me because I stopped viewing myself as a photographer a long time ago. Uh, the photography is really secondary to Humans of New York. You know, Humans of New York is my effort in a short of time as possible to make a random person on the street comfortable enough and seem that and, and seem like somebody's interested enough in their lives that they'll share their story with me and they'll share something deep and vulnerable and real and honest about their lives so that I can share that with millions of people every single night. Uh, and Humans of New York over the past six years has been my effort to get as good at that as possible. This this is a perfect segue to asking about the approaches and questions, which is which is the really important thing. I've spent the entire I feel guilty because I spent the entire if you look, I have not posted a picture of myself on Humans of New York in years. Uh, I don't, I don't do it. Uh, I find, I find that humans of New York is best when I'm the most invisible. Uh, I feel that the, the less humans of New York is about Brandon Stanton, the more influential humans of New York has become. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it feels very unnatural to, uh, have spent an hour talking already and talk nothing about myself. So please fire, fire away, ask about the work. So I'm going to ask about the work and you can, uh, you can talk about yourself in third person if it makes it feel better, but I will have to, I will have to involve you in this. I know. I know. Uh, when, 
what do you say when you cold approach someone on the street? Uh, assuming that now, of course, you could use Humans of New York and a lot of people would recognize it and you could break the ice right. that way. But with right. it, early on when nobody would recognize that, how, yeah. how, did you, how did you open and then what, what did you use to break the ice in the first 60 seconds? Uh, first thing always is, do you mind if I take your photograph? Um, that was the first thing. And I mean, these are all little things I learned is you don't walk up to somebody and ask, do you have a minute? You know, because that immediately puts somebody on defensive because especially in New York City, people are walking up to you all day long trying to sell you something, asking for money. So people are naturally very defensive. Um, So I don't want – my goal is to get into it as soon as possible so people realize that this is something a little bit different and I'm not looking to – for their money. That's the main thing. You know, I'm not looking for their money. Um, so I normally walk up and I say, uh, do you mind if I take your photograph? Um, I run a website called Humans of New York. And basically what I do is over the past several years, I photographed about 10,000 people on the streets of New York City and around the world. And I just learn a little bit about everyone I photograph. Um, and so I was just wondering if I could take your photo and ask you a few questions. Now, before you had the 10,000 and went around the world, when it was maybe the 100th person or 200th person, was it the same pitch minus that stuff? I was trying to give you actually the pitch that I I used to give in the early days. Now I pull out my cell phone, two number one New York Times bestselling books, um, you know, 20 million followers on Facebook. And the whole reason of that, even though it kind of sounds like boastful and braggy, is that especially if somebody hasn't heard of Humans of New York, you know, I, I want to convince them in as short amount of time as possible um, that it's something real, one, that's important, um, and that it's something that, you know, is a lot of people know about and a lot of people follow. It's not a joke. It's not a prank. You're not going to be embarrassed. You're not going to, you know, my goal is in as short amount of time as possible to kind of, you know, make the person feel comfortable. And these days, a big part of that is kind of explaining how big the block is, because then it's, then it's like, oh, this person is not trying to hustle me. This person isn't trying to scam me. Um, but, you know, to be honest, you know, in the early days, my success, you know, the amount of people who let me take their photo wasn't that much less, um, except back then I wasn't a best-selling author. I was just a, a kid, um, you know, who was, you know, trying to make an art project and, and, you know, people wanted to help. And so, you know, the, I think a lot of people think that, you know, one of the reasons so many people are willing to talk to me is because Humans of New York is so well known, uh, especially in New York now. Uh, but, you know, I the my uh, my rate of people who would talk to me was not all that different when I was just getting started. Are there any other nonverbal keys oh, yeah. to that? Oh, God. I mean, there's tons of them. And, but I mean, again, these aren't things that I like. I, I, these aren't things that you know I planned or read about. You know, it's not mm, that I. You had a lot it, of trial and error. Well, they were they they were burned into me by being rejected so much. And you know, some rejections on the streets of New York aren't always polite. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and it was hard. You know, in the early days. I mean, I remember there were days. I mean, the hardest part about it was. I mean, especially. 
when I got started and Humans of New York didn't have any fans and it wasn't booked, it's, you know, it wasn't made into any books. And, you know, my family didn't believe in it and my friends thought I was crazy. I had no photography experience. I'm in New York City, you know, stopping random people and asking them questions and I'm feeling insecure. And, you know, I, when you walk up to somebody and you ask them if they can take your photo and they respond like you're some sort of freak or that you're weird, you know, it's it's hard to not internalize that because you're so insecure at the moment about, you know, whether or not what you're doing is weird. And if it's something that that, you know, it, it am I am I weird, you know, for for asking these people for their for their photographs and, you know, I would go out some days and 10 people in a row would make me feel like I'm some sort of freak. Like, do you know what city you're in? You can't be stopping random people. Like, get out of my way. Like, get, what, are you, what are you doing? Like, no, you can't take my photo. Like, get out of here. You know what I mean? And, like, during my formative and, like, impressionable, you know, early days when I'm trying to figure this out, you know, five reactions like that in a row when nobody's paying attention to your work – and you've been trying for months and you can't figure it out. I mean, psychologically it was very tough. And, you know, there'd be days where that would happen. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I would just go home and, and, you know, lay in bed. Uh, you there? Yeah. 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 You're right. Um, well, I mean, it's just like the, that was, that's the hardest part about doing it. Uh, what what did you what did you I mean what would you say to yourself during a period like that I mean it sounds so to me at least I mean the picture that it's painting having uh, experienced some dark periods in my life that have been maybe catalyzed by various things it sounds really soul crushing I mean that sounds really well, I mean I was just it, that was all you know like that was all um it was all like you know all of the doubt and you know all those and not having any money and you know just nobody's paying attention and you know i'm just doing this all day long for months and you know like all the tough shit was uh and like loneliness too like i didn't know anybody in new york like there was like I knew like two people and cause, and you know, like there was a Christmas break where those two people went home and like for two weeks, I didn't see anybody that I knew. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. And you know, I, I remember I, you know, was, I spent Christmas Eve alone at a diner. Um, and then I just went out and photographed, you know, it's like, cause it was just like the only thing, it was the only thing that could like that would keep me from like thinking about how like unlikely it was and you know whether how how stupid of an idea it might be um like the only thing that that i think you know kept me from thinking about the possibility of failing was doing it was just photographing. And so like whenever I started to 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 think is this going to work? Is it not going to work? 
uh, I just go out and photograph, you know, like that was my, my, my only way of like keeping those wolves away of, you know, is this ultimately going to be a success? Uh, am I wasting my time? Am, am I, am I, am I stupid? Like, uh, the only way to keep those away was to go out and work. And, you know, and so that's what I would do just all day long and do it and do it and do it. And so like these negative things, like the rejection of people and, you know, people saying no, and then I was talking about like all of the negative stuff, like the thing that was like counteracting that all the time was just loving it so much. You know, I just, I just, I just loved it so much. Uh, and so yeah, you know, it's like it, it, it was just kind of this this the same way I was obsessed with markets. You know, I was uh, obsessed with taking photos, uh, and so that's kind of what carried me through it all. I mean, listening to this story, it makes me want to ask you: when I look at humans in New York and think about how many thousands of people you've humanized and how much empathy you've created traveling to other countries, helping to paint a more complete picture of humanity instead of allowing sort of mass media distortion to create us versus them mentality or counteracting that at least to a very real degree and helping millions of people who have been exposed to your work and the interviews to feel less alone. I mean, are you, that's a huge fucking deal. And I, I, it just, it pains me to hear a story like this, but it's so helpful for you to share it because I wonder how many people have ended up like in that diner alone and just quit, right? They just stopped. Well, I, I mean, and the, well, I mean, it's not even, it's not even about stopping, you know, it's just like, it's, I think humans of New York work. It's not about like goals or, or like mission or, you know, I had a goal and I had a mission, but people just feel alone, period. You know what I mean? It's like, that's, that's why humans of New York has, has succeeded. And I'm not even talking about the people reading it. I mean, the, the number one question that people ask me is how do you get people to share with you? And, you know, I think, you know, for, for most people and and they're not just if you follow humans of new york you know like i was yesterday i was talking with a woman who i mean i she had not heard of humans of new york this is a perfect example you know i i she was catching a train she had 30 minutes she had never heard of humans of new york we start out with me kind of showing her the blog and 30 minutes later the place that we ended up at was she was in this purgatory where her husband was depressed and an alcoholic and he wasn't doing anything that was ultimately so bad. He didn't beat her. He didn't cheat on her, but she wasn't getting fulfilled. And she was wondering if she was living her best life by staying with him for the kids. And she came to this place where she admitted that she was kind of secretly hoping that he would do something bad to make the decision easier on her. And like 
that sort of like honesty and that sort of truth and that sort of rawness. I mean, I don't know if she even admitted that to herself before. And, you know, people ask me and that happens all the time, Tim, like that's good humans of New York. I mean, some of it's just, you know, pictures of kids saying cute stuff and some of it's cute couples, you know, talking about their relationship, but you know, good, good humans of New York is, is when we get to that moment, you know, when me and somebody are thinking through something or talking through something that they might not have, have thought through before. And, you know, the way people say, how do you get there with a complete stranger? You know, I think that whenever I'm talking to somebody on the street, there are two threads running through their head at any given time. And one of them is this kind of fear of being exposed, this feeling of, of being vulnerable and discomfort. Who is this guy? Like, why is he asking me through these questions? And on the other hand, there is this appreciation of being heard that even though I don't know this guy, this is the first person who has taken such a a focused and detailed interest in my problems and and and, and the, the the feeling of having somebody focus so in, intensely not on the sports teams you like or the music you like or any of the other kind of trivial things that we 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 got we get asked on on a daily basis but you know these these real things that you're struggling with and maybe not even on the top of your mind but like in the back of your mind that you're not even really bringing to the surface you know being heard like that is is such a validating thing that that's why people always share. And and I tell people at the beginning of every interview that these questions are going to be hard and anything you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer. And we talk about when they got molested as a child. We talk about them cheating on their husbands. We talk about their alcoholism. We, we talk about how they don't love their child as much as they expected they would, you know? We talk about all these things, and almost never do people say, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. And I think the reason Humans of New York works isn't because the people who are reading it feel alone. That's a big part of it, is that people, when they see somebody being vulnerable in a way that they're afraid to be vulnerable themselves, they connect with that person. But it really works because the people on the street that I meet are so thankful to have somebody really listen to them that in that bubble in an hour and a half where I'm sitting with a stranger on the street, this magic happens where they're willing to kind of let me into a space in their mind or their soul or whatever it is that they don't really let other people into. And it's it's that place that I think connects with so many people. That's uh, an incredible gift slash talent that you've developed that allows you to make people comfortable enough to open up to that extent in 30 minutes. I mean, that is incredibly impressive to me, uh, even given the fact that perhaps one of the elements underpinning it is how, how heard 
they feel, which is absolutely, I'm sure, the case. Uh, I think about questions a lot, and you have much more experience than I do, and that just blows me away that you're able to get there in such a short period of time. What are some of the other ingredients or aspects of it that help you to questions perhaps that help you to get there it's it's not the questions i have about three or four entry questions that i use what's your biggest struggle how has your life turned out differently than you expected it to what do you feel most guilty about but really the planned questions are just kind of springboards into a conversation and you know where how you get to that deep place with a person is absolute presence. It's being 100% there. You're not thinking in the framework of an interview. You're not looking at a list of questions. You're not thinking about your next question. You're not thinking about how this person fits into your idea of them and what you know about them. You're 100% there and you're 100% listening to them. And your questions are 100% coming based on curiosity about what they are telling you and nothing else. And, you know, why it is that I think Humans of New York is special and I think Humans of New York is is something that, you know, is, is, is precious and, and maybe difficult to replicate is that, you know, I've spent seven years in these conversations with 10,000 people. And it's not necessarily that I have gotten so good at asking questions. It's just that I've gotten so comfortable in the presence of a stranger and so comfortable in the presence of somebody that I've just met that I can sit there with them without an ounce of self-consciousness and just be and just be there with them and listen to them and be curious about them and there's this energy that happens there that this doesn't feel like somebody that's interviewing you. It feels like somebody who knows you and cares about you is really interested in what's going on in your life. And I, I and it's, it's very subtle and, and hard to describe, but I think it's that energy and that presence and that being there. And it's something I had to earn. It's the same thing like public speaking, you know, I mean, when do you really get good at public speaking? It's when you've done it so much that you can be yourself on the stage. And there's only one way to get there, and that's to be on stage scared as shit over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I think the only way to get to that place where you can have that rapport with a stranger is not by studying interview techniques it's by sitting with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of strangers until nothing feels strange about it anymore. And you're able to be in that calm, present place. And what happens is your energy transfers to the other person. And they get to that place too. If we were to pick up the example that you gave just a few minutes ago about this woman talking about her relationship with her husband and his depression and alcoholism and so on. How did you, if, if you remember, how did you end up there? In, in other words, do you recall how the conversation headed to that, oh, to yeah. that point? Oh, yeah. I mean, it can, uh, well, let me give you another example since I already, uh, 
let me give you an example of somebody I talked to in the Philippines a few weeks ago. Same thing. I've traveled to 30 different countries now. I've done the exact same work. I've been to Pakistan. I've been to Iran. I've been to Iraq. Uh, and I work with interpreters, and the process is exactly the same. I just walk up to people, random people, and get into these conversations with them. There was a woman in a park in the Philippines, and I started asking her. I think one of the first questions I asked her was, what is your biggest goal in life? And she said she wanted to have a good family life. And so I thought that that was the story, and I started asking about that. And I learned that she wanted to have a good family life because when she was young, her family split. And she was forced to go to the courthouse with her mom and her dad at the age of nine. And the judge made her choose which parent she wanted to go with. And so I thought that was the story. And so I started asking questions about that. And then I learned that she ended up going with her mom. And afterwards, she, her mom remarried. And she didn't like her new stepfather, so she ran away. And I thought that that was the story. So I started asking questions about that. And then I found out that the reason she ran away was because her stepfather was abusing her. And that she had never told a person in her life, including her mom, until that moment that that had happened. And that's how we end up in those places is I just – I am just curious about what's going on in there. You know, I'm just curious about what happened. I, I want to know the story, and I just ask, and I ask, and I ask, and if, and if something's not quite making sense, I, I, I want to know why. And so I ask more, and I ask more, and, and it's, it's like you can't – I mean somebody can choose to eventually – to not tell the truth by saying I'm uncomfortable with it. But it can't really be concealed if somebody is really, 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 really curious. You know what I mean? You, you, you can never you know, get to the point – like it's Humans of New York interviews don't work. I always say it's not because somebody doesn't have an interesting story. Humans of New York interviews don't work when I reach a place when somebody's uncomfortable with the process, which is absolutely fine. There's That's completely understandable. I'm a random person. I'm sharing these stories with 20 million people. It's 100% fine if you don't want to share. Like that's not that – is, that is nothing against you at all. But those are the interviews that don't make it on the blog. It's not that people aren't interesting. It's that Humans of New York really kind of thrives on this kind of honesty. And if somebody's willing to be honest, I mean everybody's got an interesting story. And so it's like the I hit dead ends not because somebody's boring. It's because somebody isn't f comfortable with disclosing. Um, and so that's that's kind of what defines, you know, the the Humans of New York interview or, or what is usable of the Humans of New York interview. How often when people disclose when they do go there and disclose these very vulnerable stories or things they've never told anyone else, 
how often do they ask that you not use it or that they are, or express concern that it's going to cause some type of problem for them? Well, that's, that's one thing that I am very principled about. Um, I give the person agency every step of the way. I tell them anything you don't want to answer. First of all, they don't have to talk to me. Okay. They have that decision. Once we start talking, I say any question you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer. If you tell me something during the course of this interview and you change your mind afterwards and don't want me to share it, that's fine. At the end of the interview, if you would like me to photograph your hands or your feet instead of your face, we can do that. In fact, if it's a very vulnerable story, I will normally insist on that to protect the person or protect somebody that they're talking about. If after I've done the interview and before it's posted at any time you change your mind and you don't want me to share it, I give them my email address. And after the photo is up, for any reason, at any time, if you become uncomfortable from all the attention and would like me to take the story down, I immediately will. And so people have control of it every step of the way. Uh, it's very important to me that he, nobody ever sees Humans of New York as something that was done to them. I always want it to be seen as something that was done with them. And, you know, have I failed at that sometimes out of the 10,000 people have I interviewed, you know, have there been people who were didn't expect me to share a certain part of their story or were surprised by it or it was a negative experience for there have been a handful, you know, but I can only say that those are the those are the worst moments for me uh, when Humans of New York was a negative experience for somebody because that, that's who I really care about is, is the people that that are on the block you know because I mean they're the, they're the people who kind of I, I had that moment with you know I spent an hour and a half with them and, and we and we got to that place and you know I, I I just if they are hurt by it you know what I mean um or if it's like if, especially if they were really kind of vulnerable, then that's that's when I feel the worst about myself uh, because I know how much pressure that spotlight can be. And I know, you know, how how difficult it can be, you know, under you know, having 20 million people look at you. And so, you know, if, if, if I ever feel that, like, I may be accidentally misrepresented it or or, you know, or, or that that's that's when I feel the worst. How do you think about money as it relates to humans of New York? Uh, ostensibly, you want to probably eat more than peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and eggs right, now. Right. At the and same, I mean, at, it's it, yeah. It go, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was mean, just going to say in terms of what you do with advertising or right. partnerships or projects, right. uh, because you have such also such sensitive not not always, but. Uh, you have such potentially sensitive subject matter and it's so personalized for these folks in right. many cases. How do you, how do you think about that? Right. Um, well the, you know, right now, obviously, so humans of New York, I think we sold a million and a half books. Um, the, you know, the, the television show, you know, Facebook, you know, and Facebook, there's a, more than one person interested in it and Facebook, you know, 
they 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 compensated me well for the four years of work that I worked on the television series. So, you know, I'm very comfortable right now. You know, I mean, humans of New York, uh, has made me a, let's just say I'm not, I'm not working about worrying about peanut butter and sandwiches. Anymore. You know, I'm, 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 I'm right. very comfortable. Um, with that being said, uh, I will say that, Humans of New York has raised. I've I've made, I've made a fraction of the money with Humans of New York that we have raised for charity. A small fraction of the money that we've raised for charity. Um, I have turned down maybe more money than I've made uh, from people who want to use my brand to partner with their brand. You know. Um, Big brands have offered me a lot of money to do humans of, and I'm just going to make up some names. You know what I mean? Like humans of Mercedes Benz, humans of you know, humans of China, sponsored by Virgin Airlines. These are all fake things that I'm making up right now, but have resembled offers that have been made to me. Um, where where I make the dividing line is that I'm willing to make money as Brandon Stanton. Uh, a big part of my income comes from speeches. You know, I give about 10 of these a year, um, and uh, that is a big part of my income. Uh, I have sell books as Brandon Stanton. Um, I don't sell the name Humans of New York to anyone. I don't rent my brand to anyone um, and because I never want – any piece of content that I share to have a single motive, I, I've never broken that seal, and you know it's been it's been so tempting, but I just know if I break it once, I'm never going to get it back. Um, so I, for seven years, I've never been compensated for a piece of content that I've posted on my blog, uh, and. You know that is that is the main delineation um, that I make between you know what can be monetized and what can't, and because of that, like I said, I'm not worrying about peanut butter and sandwiches anymore. Um, but you know there is <laughs> there is a little bit of an insecurity. Am I going to look back in 40 years if everything suddenly if everything suddenly goes away and Facebook and Instagram nobody are using anymore? Am I going to be like, oh man? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm working the night shift now, and I had 20 million. I had, I had, I had 20 million followers 20 years ago. Maybe I should have uh, tried a little harder to make some money, but uh, that's how I view it now. Should have done those humans in New York lunch boxes while I had the chance. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned the book. I'd, I'd like to chat about that for for a second because it's it's been the well books at this point certainly, but the. At least, as I understand it, the first book. So millions of copies, certainly more than a million. Was it easy to find a publisher for that first book? No, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I barely did. Um, the Macmillan, uh, God bless them. So, like at the time, you know, I, I think when I sold the book, I had a few hundred thousand Facebook fans, and it was growing so fast. You know, there was so much energy, you know, things were really taking off. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, you know, everybody's going to want to publish this book. 
and and there's six big publishers. I'm sure you know all this, um, or seven or something like that. And you, 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 the goal is to get all of them interested. Um, and so, and then, you know, in the perfect world, all of them are interested and then they bid against each other. Right. Um, and so I only three of them would meet with me or four of them, maybe. Um, and during those meetings, I thought that I killed it. You know, I thought, oh man, like, uh, then I, I described it so well, I, I, you know, presented so well, they're all going to be very interested. And so we had an auction <laughs> and the, the bids were due by 12 o'clock noon on one day. Uh, and it's like, at 11 o'clock, I hadn't heard anything from my agent. Um, <laughs> and, and I was just like, well, what's going on? So I texted him and he goes, oh, uh, the first three dropped out. There's, they didn't make an offer. There's still one that we haven't heard from yet. Uh, and I'm just like, oh my God, you know, because that book was, well, that book was my life raft. Cause I didn't have any money at that time. I was hoping to get a little bit of a book deal so I could, you know, pay my bills. And I just remember I went to the YMCA and I just ran like five miles. Cause I thought it was going to be the worst day of my life. Um, and then when I got on the treadmill, I found out that, uh, Macmillan had made a, a, a small but respectable offer, um, and that's how I, I got a book deal by the skin of my teeth, which I think was uh, which was lucrative for all parties involved. <laughs> and uh, what were some of the, re the reasons for not meeting with you or not putting yeah. in an offer that they gave? Because there's two types of books that have a history of not selling well. Uh, well, there's a lot of types, but mine, mine fit two categories. It was a photography book. Photography's books don't sell based on conventional wisdom. And it was a what they viewed as a regional book where it is a photography book center, centered on a single city. Therefore, nobody's going to want it. That was the <laughs> that was that was the argument against publishing humans of New York. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is I I love these stories because they are the rule and not the exception for so mm -hmm. many things that turn into something. Well, things that are not derivative. You know what I mean? Right. Like in my mind, in my mind, like the most valuable idea is the one that nobody's ever seen before. Like that's when you've got the gold. But you've got a better chance of just choosing something else that's good and making something derivative on it, uh, because then when you go when you go into these places and you pitch, you can say, "Oh, this is the uh, this is Fifty Shades of Grey, but you know, with furries." I don't know. Uh, it's just like the, it's like it's 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 funny that like for me as an artist and as as a creator. The the last thing I ever want to do is be describing my work as it's this but with a twist. You know what I mean? Like I, I want to be creating something new. Uh, however, in the marketplace, the things that are have most likely chance of getting bought are things that people can can peg to other past successes. And so when you walk in with something like what I thought was Humans of New York's greatest value, which was there really wasn't anything else like it at the time. Um, they, 
they viewed as its biggest detriment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what are the comparables? You're like, uh, that's the whole point. There, <laughs> there aren't that comparables. Yeah, right? Comparables. That fucking word. I mean, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like, I just like in, in in the same the same thing. You know, when I was making the television series, like the same thing. It's like as an artist. I want this to be like nothing else that's been cre- – that's like the only thing I care about is making something that's really unlike anything else. Like that – that is if, – if it's like something else, it's – it's. I don't really want to obsess over it for three years trying to make it. You know, my goal is to is to make something new and something fresh and – when you're trying to get compensated for your work, you know, the thing that you care about the most as an artist is often the thing that's held against you the most uh, because people are risk averse and they want to see something comparable that has also done well. What's next for you? I mean, if, if you do you have five year plans, three year plans and so on at this point, or is it still 24 hours by 24 hours? What's, no, what's next mean, for you? I do. I'm having a baby, so that's gonna be new. Congratulations! Um, that's a big thank deal. Thank you. Having a baby in July, so uh, beyond that, which is going to be new. Um, the like for for me right now, the biggest kind of artistic tension um, is knowing because of my experience on social media, um, the past seven years, knowing, knowing how social media works, knowing the importance of output and content and, and daily content and, and, um, engagement and things like that. Um, knowing how to build an audience on one hand and wanting to push myself as an artist on the other hand. Um, and, you know, what I really want to do as an artist is I kind of want to withdraw from the daily, you know, output model. Uh, I want to work on things that have longer time frames that are more polished and are maybe longer, but take longer to produce and, and more resources. Uh, but that, in order to do that, that requires me to kind of pull back from the blog, um, which, you know, the, the golden rule of, you know, social media is keep engaging with your audience, keep connecting with your audience, you know, don't lose touch, don't lose touch, don't lose touch. Uh, but the artist in me wants to go disappear for a while and, you know, go into a dark cave and, and come out with something. Uh, so I think, you know, that is, that is the main push and pull in my mind right now. Um, so I'm going to be going to the Philippines next month, uh, to work on, I'm going to spend a month filming a documentary on somebody because I love documentaries and I want to make a documentary, um, that is very interesting. So that might not be what's best for business or best for growing audience or best, you know, by social media metrics, but that is, that is what is exciting to me. And it, it all comes back to that moment. It's like, I, it's so funny. And I think, you're probably the same way is that we have these mantras and these things that we've learned uh, that we stand on stage and we, and we say, and we, and we think about, you know, don't wait for the perfect idea. You know, it's never going to seem perfect. You just got to go after it, choose, you know, what is nourishing in the moment, things like that. Uh, And if you're like me, like, 
I, I have to, I have to preach to myself, you know, a lot, you know, and, and tell myself the same thing that I'm telling other people because it's so easy to kind of, you know, fall back into what everybody else uh, is struggling with as well because you never truly escape it. And so, you know, one of the things that I do is, you know, I go back to that moment when I lost my job and I was walking in Chicago and I asked myself, you know, if nothing mattered but but how I was spending my time, you know, what what would I what would I be doing? What would be most nourishing for me in any given moment uh, if it was if nothing else mattered except for how I spent my time? Uh, and, you know, I'm trying to remind myself of that, you know, the same thing I tell other people. And right now I, I want to go to the Philippines and I want to make a documentary and it might not be best for business and it might not be best for humans of New York, but it's what Brandon wants to do. And so that is, uh, that is the North star that I'm trying to follow. Good for you, man. I'm excited for you to disappear for a little while. (laughs) Not that may come off the wrong way, but I think you get the, (laughs) you get the, you get the sentiment behind it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I have a random suggestion, which is if you have not read cryptonomicon, which is a, a, book by neil stevenson who also wrote snow crash oh, i love snow crash love so snow so crash. cryptonomicon part of the through line one of the narratives takes place in the philippines so that could be okay, cool. that could be fun to pick up but yeah. brandon thank you so much for yeah. taking the time today this was really a wonderful experience for me and thank you for being vulnerable also and i be telling filling in some of the color in the, the story of your life thus far. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's been, it's been really nice to get to know you a little better in this conversation. Well, thank you so much. Um, hope, hope some of that's usable. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it is. Is there anything else you would like to ask of people, suggest to people, any, any closing comments before we wrap up? No, I think that's okay. No, I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, once again, really appreciate you making the time, uh, yeah. particularly how much you think about how you spend your time uh, to chat with me and with everybody today. And for everyone listening, you can, as always, find links to everything that we have spoken about, to all of Brandon's projects, as well in the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And until next time, do what is nourishing for you in the moment, or at least ponder the question. And thanks for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite 
of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. If you're a longtime listener of the show or brand new to the podcast, my favorite Finnish entrepreneurs who founded this company, of course, I don't know that many Finnish entrepreneurs, but they may be my favorites, have something new that I've been loving. And some of you are familiar with Four Sigmatic. I've used their products for years now. They were introduced to me by an acrobat of all folks, and they tend to mix different types of medicinal mushrooms into their products. I have recently started using their matcha, which is a green tea, which is designed as a coffee alternative. And if you're trying to cut back on caffeine, as I am these days, the matcha is a great option. And one that I originally learned to love in Japan has a very smooth texture to it. Their matcha blend, in particular, includes the amino acid L-theanine, which helps to provide a, let's call it, balanced boost of energy without the jitters. It also includes the adaptogen astralagus, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which may help with overall stress tolerance. And for those of you who are wondering, no, the products don't taste like mushrooms. <laughs> if they say mushroom coffee, for instance, another product that I use doesn't taste like mushrooms, it tastes like coffee. But you get the nutritional benefits of some of these special ingredients. So the products don't taste like mushrooms and are enjoyable. I offer them to my house guests and use them myself, and I don't particularly want to drink anything that tastes like mushrooms. So, moving on. The folks at Four Sigmatic have designed a few special deals for you guys, my listeners, which include many of my favorite products of theirs. So check it out. Visit Four Sigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com forward slash Tim Tim. That's T-I-M-T-I-M, no space to see these special deals, which are not offered anywhere else. Remember to use the code TimTim. I don't know why they chose TimTim, but there we go. Remember to use the code TimTim at checkout to receive your special discount. Again, that's foursigmatic.com forward slash TimTim and enter the promo code TimTim. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by WordPress.com. I love WordPress. I have used it for so many years. It's my go-to platform for blogging and creating websites. I use WordPress.com for everything every day. My site, Tim.blog, is built on it. The websites for my books, including Tools of Titans, Tribe of Mentors, it's all on WordPress.com. And the founder, Matt Mullenweg, one of my close friends, has appeared on this show many times. Just search Matt Mullenweg Tequila Ferris for quite an exciting time. Whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, you can make a really big impact right out of the box when you build on WordPress.com. And you'll be in good company. It's used by The New Yorker, Jay-Z, Beyonce, 538, TechCrunch, TED, CNN, and Time, just to name a handful. And one of my friends at Google, she'll remain nameless, has told me that WordPress.com offers the, quote, best out-of-the-box SEO imaginable, end quote. And it's one of the many reasons that nearly 30% of the internet is run on WordPress. You do not need experience or to hire someone. That's perhaps the best part. WordPress.com guides you through the entire experience. They have hundreds of designs and templates that you can use. And it's easy to get started. There's no need to worry about security, upgrades, hosting, any of that. They offer 24-7 support. And they're very, very responsive. If you have questions, they get right back to you. 
And this allows you to create the highest quality with the least amount of headache and friction. So if you're building a website, period, and my friends come to me and ask what I use, what I recommend they use, the answer is WordPress.com. So check it out. If you want to get started today, learn more with a 15% discount off any new plan. Go to WordPress.com forward slash Tim to create your website and find the plan that's right for you. So learn more. Take a look. WordPress.com forward slash Tim for 15% off a brand new website. Check it out.